The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us, and also great to welcome my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great uh, discussion ahead, so let's kick it off uh, with you, Phil. Please go ahead. Thanks, John. So there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, and let's see the date. It was last week, September 15th of 2022. And it certainly caught my attention. I I love these kinds of articles, these kind of long form uh, explorations of a, of a certain topic. And uh, I'm such a psycho that I still pull down and save articles that I've read, and I go back and and collect everything from a year or something and reread them years later. And I think this will be a really interesting one to look back at at a few in a few years from now because it hits on a lot of the things that we started talking about. I think right as we were launching this podcast in 2020, I've certainly harped on it a lot in the context of Peloton, which we'll come back to. But it's this idea of a shortage turning into a glut. And the the, the feature of the article was about uh, Scott's Miracle Grow, the fertilizer company here in the US. The title of the article is From Shortage to Glut, Scott's Miracle Grow is Buried in Fertilizer. And anyone can look that article up and read it for themselves, I'd, I'd highly encourage it. Um, the, and I, I think we may have mentioned this, if not, I mean, there, there've been several, they may have taken the title of that article directly from uh, Nassim Taleb, who's who's tweeted about it several times, say what you will about his uh, Twitter behavior, but he, he's certainly not wrong about this. He's been chronicling the uh, shortage to glut phenomenon uh, in a whole range of things. Uh, the, the first tweet I found from him was actually almost exactly a year, a year ago in September of 2021 when he said, I've seen gluts not followed by shortages, but I've never seen a shortage not followed by a glut. And all the double negatives kind of wrap, kind of tough to wrap your head around. But the point is that, you know, you don't necessarily get a, a, a glut that leads to a shortage, right? I mean, just because you have an oversupply of something does not necessarily mean there's going to then you know, supply is going to dry up and you're going to have a shortage. But on the flip side, when you have a shortage for a combination of reasons, you often get a glut. I think those reasons are multifaceted. I think they're fascinating. I think they're driven largely by incentives, which is that everybody sees massive dollar signs when the price of lumber goes from 200 to 800 and they think about all the money they could make and all the money that they're foregoing by not having enough supply on hand. They kind of lose their bearings for a little bit. Similarly, when things are necessary and you don't have them, 
and you have that panic feeling of being undersupplied, I think the natural and obvious reaction is to oversupply them. I mean, I think everyone remembers the early days of the pandemic when you couldn't find all sorts of basic things, but, you know, indirectly related to the pandemic stuff like toilet paper or Clorox wipes, I guess are related, but, you know, that stuff is now all well oversupplied and for, for obvious reasons and for good reasons, that's a natural reaction. But in the case of something as simple as residential fertilizer, which is just for people's lawns and gardens, this is not commercial, industrial, agricultural grade fertilizer. Look at some of these numbers. Uh, they said that, if this is Scott's miracle grown up, that they were having basically going to have their biggest year ever was in 2020. They pulled forward, according to the CEO, 10 years of growth in one year, which is staggering. And, and according to their best guess internally, they lost $200 million of sales because they were short inventory. Now, th this is where it gets a little bit easy to criticize the company. I, I'll say this, $200 million of sales would have been five, six, seven, eight percent of total sales at that point. Not exactly a disaster to lose out on that level of sales. It's not like you could have doubled your sales or some crazy high number. $200 million is still a lot of money. It's a big sales number. Nobody wants to lose that level of sales. As a quick diversion though, it's really hard to manage this stuff. So as much as this is going to sound critical, I'm actually almost completely sympathetic with a few exceptions we'll talk about. I'm almost completely sympathetic to how hard it was to manage through this cycle. And as we'll see. So what happened then is inventory um, doubled from pre-pandemic levels. The, the levels went to, let's see, total inventory December 2021 was 1.7 billion, up 55% year over year and twice the level of its pre-COVID standard. Capital spending doubled in an unrelated business. The, the company was basically all in on this expansion. And then what happened? They were guiding internally and externally to what they thought was a pretty conservative level, knowing that they were going to have some tough comps here in 2022. And they went into the month of May feeling pretty good. And then all of a sudden, there was a $300 million retail order shortfall just in May of 2020, in May of 2022, as Home Depot and Lowe's and Walmart and other retailers realized that they had too much inventory sitting on their shelves and they didn't need to reorder from Scott's. And so you think about that. Okay. So you missed out on $200 million of sales and now you've got $300 million of orders that you were counting on that you've basically started production on that disappeared. So you got whipsawed in both directions, except on the way down, it's way worse. Because as I mentioned, inventory has now doubled Debt is three and a half billion versus one and a half billion, and cash on hand has gone from two hundred and forty-four million in June, the June quarter of twenty twenty-one, all the way down to twenty-eight million in June of this year. And the CEO is quoted in this article saying a lot of things like, "You know, we realized like on on May first we thought we were good, and we realized that on Memorial Day it was a." you know, break glass in case of emergency, stop production, we need to conserve cash type of moment. And as you, as anyone who's following it, I'm sure would realize this has not been fun for the stock price. It has declined uh, quite precipitously. It was, uh, let's see, what was the all-time high? I'll pull it up here in a second, but uh, it, it has been, it has been a rocky road to say the least. So, what what do we do about this, right? I mean, I, I, I guess the answers are 
be more conservative, be willing to suffer pain, you know, be a little more um, circumspect in, in extrapolating trends. But I think it, it just comes back to this awareness, this, this age old rule of thumb that, you know, look, just because we're having a shortage right now doesn't mean we need to double our supply chain, you know, double our balance sheet investment and inventory and go completely nuts here because the base rate assumption here, the odds on bet here is that this shortage will lead to a glut and we need to be able to survive that. Sorry, I was just able to pull up the stock price. Um, the stock's currently sitting at about $50 a share. That's a market cap of about $2.8 billion. Because of all the debt, the enterprise value is about $6.1, $6.2 billion. And the stock price of $50 a share is down 68% this year and down from an all-time high of 200 and call it $51 a share just last year. So from 250 to 50 in about five quarters. I mean, these are lightning fast changes. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'll come back to Peloton because I imagine we'll, we'll talk about that as well. But I'll kick it off with Elliot and John and just ask what you guys think about this example, what the company could have done better. And then I've got a list of current examples and potentially future examples of shortages leading to gluts. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned Peloton because I think it creates quite the contrast. Scott's miracle Grow is not some sexy high flyer that attracted a certain kind of investor who didn't look at profitability. This was a company that was profitable for many, many years. Have a CEO um, in Hag Hagedorn who has a history of execution and delivery, who owns a ton of the stock. I don't know if uh, everyone's familiar with his background, but he's a no-nonsense former F-16 pilot in the Air Force. Very straight talker. Um, and you know he's made some big bets. The merger of Scott's Miracle Grow together to make this company was one, but he's never been one to get over his skis. Like a very long track record with no missteps. And yet, here they are. And fertilizer is not exactly an exciting business like at-home exercise bikes where you might be want to like misconstrue where demand's going. Uh, it's a product that's been around for a very long time. It's not novel. You're not creating a market. And so, you know, he said in the article, they missed about $250 million, uh, $200 million of sales because of not having enough stock, not having enough inventory during COVID. And so they did everything to change that. And, you know, it's absolutely crazy to me that this is something that's been repeated across so many different kinds of diverse industries. I think some of the conversation around what's happened is far more focused on tech companies as the winners of COVID and, and, and the fallout, partly because the NASDAQ's down over 10 points, um, not quite 10 points, but quite a bit more than the S&P. But also because I think some people like uh, digging into the uh, high flyers more than they do a company like Scott's. And so I think that's important to think about. There are a lot of lessons here. And one of the things that I've been thinking about relatedly is this notion of the bullwhip effect, um, which I think is a, is to the point that you raised about Taleb, where shortages um, presage gluts. 
you know, the bullwhip effect is this idea, the way Wikipedia describes it is suppliers have a larger variability than sales to buyers, which results in an amplified demand variability upstream and increasing swings in inventory in response to shifts in consumer demand as one moves further up the supply chain. And in the case of a company like Scott's, you know, 40% of their fertilizer sales go through, uh, even beyond fertilizer, but 40% of their sales go through channels like Home Depot and Lowe's. And, you know, even these players didn't have enough visibility on how to handle inventory down the pipe. And they ended up uh, having too much of their own. And this is true. You hear it in Walmart where they and Target uh, in their second quarter warnings, where they talked about how um, there are changing channels of demand where people are buying more reopening stuff and not buying things like furniture, uh, which is one space where you're seeing, I think, this big bullwhip. So they had the benefit of having a prolonged sales cycle. So still delivering some of these past orders, um, all kinds of craziness. And I think you know, one of the historical analogs that I was introduced to where I, where there might have been a very similar effect is the reopening after COVID is a lot like the demobilization after World War II when soldiers came home and you saw sources of demand change. What people wanted was different, demand for different kinds of products and services. Um, and there was this like rapid up and down swing and increased uh, volatility in the economy itself because you have a harder time in the end uh, sources of demand matching with the suppliers. Um, so these are things I've been thinking about a lot. Curious to hear some of the other companies, Phil, and how diverse these companies might be that uh, yeah. you had coming to mind. Yeah, I mean, I it was less so far. I mean, there's there's a few specific companies, but more current examples of things. You know, almost everything that pertains to in 2020 or 2021. I was stuck at home you know, pouring money into whatever I could do at the time that's now over. Um, there there have not necessarily been full corrections yet in that. I, I was talking to somebody the other day and, and looking at some numbers of, about the golf industry, right? Because in, in a lot of those months, the golf was one of the few things you could do outdoors, socially distance, you know, with a couple other people. Um and and the golf numbers have not really slowed down. I think the key there is is kind of your comment about the bullwhip effect. There's not much worse place you could be than where Scott's Miracle Grow was when they were at the mercy of these rapidly changing trends, and they were two levels down the turnpike because it was all about whether Lowe's and Home Depot decided to you know, correctly forecast their own levels of demand and their own inventory. And then you were just left holding the bag. I mean, in the case of a golf course, you can't really build one. The supply doesn't change very quickly, right? But the golf numbers have not fallen yet, but I would put that on my list of, of future examples. So here are things that I would say are potentially in a current shortage that could be headed toward a glut at some point. The oil market, right? I mean, I think it was so undersupplied, underinvested in for a while um, the, the counterbalance to that will be what happens in the development and, and rollout of alternative forms of energy. We'll have to see. But I think the oil supply response has always proven to be pretty flexible in the past. And, and we'll see lithium batteries on the flip side, right? Um, you know, look, there are massive, massive incentives. And there was an article also worth reading. I think it was in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, uh, or it might have been two days ago about the you know massive difficulties that the OEMs are having in sourcing the materials they need. And when the incentives are that strong and the shortage is that stark, I think it's reasonable to 
potentially worry about a glut down the road. Semiconductors, again, a little tricky. These are all in, in some regard a little tricky because they have they have less elastic supply responses other than oil potentially, but even that's tricky. Um, it's, it's not easy to build a new fabrication facility for a semiconductor, but semiconductors are in very short supply. It's causing a huge problem right now. At some point, is there going to be a response that goes a little bit the other direction? Likewise, semi or uh, single family residential properties, real estate, housing is a multifaceted problem right now. I mean, we overbuilt for a long time. We've underbuilt now potentially for a little while. The mortgage market is causing havoc. So there's lots of facets there that are, you know, tricky. Uh, a pretty good one that I would say is a longer tail, but probably more reliable to forecast is airline capacity. The only constraint there that would offset that, uh, I guess all these do have an offset, but it is airport capacity. Uh, the OEMs, Boeing and Airbus, will eventually produce enough to meet demand. The You would presume that the labor response would be there to eventually staff and meet demand, but... Um, We'll see. That's always been the case in the past. So even though you know there there aren't enough planes, there aren't enough pilots and flight attendants in the air right now to really meet the, the level of demand they would like to. I'm sure if you interviewed the CEO and CFO of all the major airlines, they would all say right now, yes, we could fly more. We would like to fly more. We could make more money if we were flying more, and they just can't pull it off. There, there's FAA constraints. There's all kinds of problems, but you get the point. But the current examples, I mean, Scott's Miracle Girl, like you said, Elliot, is a great one because it's relatively boring. Um, it's not cool. It's not sexy. But again, I don't know that a stationary bicycle with an iPad on, it's really all that sexy either. So, uh, but, you know, toilet paper, Clorox wipes, everything, home goods. I mean, Target already had this issue earlier this year. You're seeing to a certain extent, a little bit of it already in commodities like wheat, corn, soy. Uh, lumber has ridden some crazy price volatility already along these lines where it was in such short supply earlier. Uh, the, the price went so high and then, you know, you ran into a little mini glut. We'll see how that plays out over time. But I think there's a lot more to come along these lines. And I think what I'm probably most interested in, I guess there's two angles to it. One is what do you do about as an investor? And I, I guess my only answer there is to just continue to say, don't over extrapolate in either direction. Right? I mean, some of the best opportunities in the world are when a company's run headfirst into a brick wall and everybody assumes that the game is over and nothing's going to ever get better and they just extrapolate down, 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 down forever. Likewise, you can lose tons of money, as we just saw here with a couple of examples, when you assume like, okay, we had this pandemic and people are going to stay home and just garden forever, which is about the only way you could have justified the prices. I will say in the Scott's Miracle Girl case, they also have this... Uh, relatively small subsidiary focused on the uh, marijuana and cannabis industry, which did bring a little sex appeal and a, a little bit of a secular growth component to it, I, I suppose. But that that's not really that's not really the key part of it. The second angle that I'd be interested in is, you know, what would you do? How would you handle this if you were in the executive suite at Scott's Miracle Grow? And again, I mean, Elliot, you're right. I, I find the CEO kind of hilarious. There's a great quote in here. I know this is a family podcast and uh, uh, I'll try to make this a one-time exception, but his quote was, I love working, but this isn't exactly the shithole I was planning to live in toward the end of my career, working my way out of a goddamn latrine, but that's where it is. And that's where I am. So it's pretty, pretty uh, vivid and straightforward description of where he is, but where could he have 
change direction so that he wasn't finding himself working his way out of a latrine. I guess I would just say that, look, if you're sitting down in a budget meeting or looking at the figures and you see that at year end 2021, which is when they're kind of peaking their 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 supply and their inventory for the upcoming spring selling season, and you see that total inventory has doubled over the prior two years level, what would justify that? I mean, what I, I just the, the bigger sin is is what has happened, not missing out on a five percent higher sales level, right? Because if you're short inventory, you can always manage that. I mean, look at how luxury goods companies and cartels like De Beers, I mean, that's the world's biggest disaster to them is to ever have a glut, right? They want to create an artificial shortage. And I'm not here to suggest that Scott's Miracle Grow should have constrained its own inventory and supply and withheld production it was capable of producing for Home Depot and Lowe's. But it would have been better to be you know, running a little closer to that side rather than saying like, okay, we can't ever have that happen again where we miss $200 million of sales. Right. And again, this is all Monday morning quarterbacking. It's very easy to sit here and second guess it. I, I'm just trying to see what the lessons learned could be rather than offering any blunt outright criticism. Yeah, I totally agree with that last point, Phil, because um, you know, Scott's did have a bunch of levers that they could pull. Obviously, the relationships with the retailers complicates things because you want to remain on good terms with them. But it seems like Scott's kind of went out of its way to um, to hurt itself in, in, in some way because, you know, they, I think they promised even three-day delivery to some of their major retail partners. Yeah, right. And so they kind of took a lot of inventory volatility risk themselves that they probably didn't have to. And uh, and it sounds like for the retailers, it was uh, pretty pretty easy. One of the easiest decisions was to, um, you know, cut uh, cut cut Scott's inventory um, that they had. So um, probably some some not so great uh, decisions made there. And um, the other thing is, you know, Scott's. It sounds like the inventory does not obsolete quickly, so it can actually be used to the following season. And you know, if you have fairly cheap credit availability, you kind of wonder why would an inventory, like a temporary inventory buildup, be such a huge issue? You can finance it, and it doesn't go bad. And uh, everybody knows it's say it's kind of a transitory uh, impact. Um, so whatever the impact on the cash flow is, was going to reverse in, in a future uh, period. So, you know, yeah, that's, that- a, that's a great point. And I actually looked this up. And so if you assume, if you take Hedgedorn's comments that they took 10 years of growth into one year and assume that the pandemic had never happened or that we're going back to the pre-pandemic trend line, the current level of normalized sales would be something around three and a half billion, maybe four billion, as opposed to five billion last year, right? So pretty good 20% drop, maybe 25% drop or more um, from that trend level. But if you go off of that level and say, all right, we're going to get back to three and a half, four billion of sales, we're going to normalize margins and earnings and cash flow. The problem with what you just laid out, John, was because you're 100% right. I mean, the good news is this is not a perishable good. This is not 
you know, a food item or a fashion item where it's just going to sit there and rot and collect dust or have to be thrown out. You could store this stuff at relatively little cost and it's it's not going to go bad. Well, the financing part of it, though, is the problem because they've already taken on so much debt that on those numbers that I just threw out there, the company is more than six times levered right now. So to finance another billion dollars of excess inventory or something, A, is going to be expensive. I mean, that's a relatively big credit facility that you're going to have to pull off in an, in an era when interest rates just shot up and went straight against you. And B, you already have so much debt on the balance sheet. It's not exactly a comfortable decision. So again, it's kind of being hit on both sides. And that's why this is so painful and why, look, I, I, to give the company and the CEO some credit, you know, it's not easy to manage these bullwhip swings. And he did at least quickly recognize the problem. I think it would have been very easy for a lot of companies, a lot of CEOs to say, oh, well, you know, the weather kind of sucked in April and May. So that's the problem. No, as soon as these orders didn't materialize in May, he went from feeling like we're in a good, we're in a good position on May 1st to saying on May 25th, this is a disaster. Three and a half weeks later, like we need to turn it off now, immediately shut it down. We need to conserve cash. So he at least deserves credit for that. And then one financial ramification I'd add is that a lot of their cost structure for production is pretty fixed. So even if they right. shut it down, um, you know, there's some degree to which uh, you're going to have to keep realizing some losses. And yep. that gets challenging with their leverage ratios where they are. And that does tie in to their foray into the more exotic uh, green business that they're in. Um, they took on a bunch of that debt to get into that business and it too kind of collapsed. Um, right. So those mistakes compound on one another. And this is an incredibly unforgiving environment. There was no room for mistakes. Um, and when I think back on things that you could or could not have done, you know, I, I really do feel a great degree of sympathy for everyone faced with these choices. And I think we're faced with them as investors too, where it's like, you know, on the one hand, there's clearly, um, you know, a higher rate of home ownership coming out of the crisis with the demographic that you'd want to support, who you can make the case uh, there will be more demand uh, five years forward than there was five years ago. And therefore, you want to make sure to meet these people uh, early, get to forge your relationship as a brand with them, let them build trust. Like I use the Scots. Uh, for fertilizer pack every single year since I'm a homeowner. And it's something that, you know, you use their seed, you don't think about changing. It's not necessarily the biggest expense you have. Um, so you want to make sure that it's not just about losing sales. It's like if these people are truly going to be homeowners for um, decades, you want to make sure you're the go-to and there's no room for another brand to slip in and meet them before you uh, capture this because it's not just about this year's sales, it's about like the next decade. The, the butt of that is, um, you know, you can't let your inventory get that high. You got to see something happening before it happens. Um, you have to, you know, I think they were expecting a really good year and weather ends up bad. And that kind of compounded their problems coming into spring. And while May was, you know, they realized there's a d disaster. It was probably a little too late to act in some ways. Um, they were hoping things would kind of pick back up before then. 
And um, I think long story short, I just, you know, I, I think it's a lose-lose situation that they were dealt um, because I do think, you know, it's like, okay, again, you you didn't just lose 200 million of sales. You might've lost a decade relationship. Um, so if you think of it in those terms, it's far more challenging than something like De Beers where like someone's going to buy a diamond engagement ring once and most of the value you're going to get out of that person is that one time. Um, so, and, and they probably also thought about how, how, Hey, like, you know, even if we end up with a little too much inventory, um, it is not perishable. So we'll push it out to the next year. And they probably also thought, what if supply chains stay wonky and a lot of our inventory ends up in the channel, but it's still, you, you know, not, not in the end of where it's going in the channel, but in transit and we can't get it to where it needs to be. So we do need to carry a little more inventory just to be able to meet a normalized level of sales. Um, so, you know, it's amazing the value destruction along the way though. It's kind of, um, you know, I just sit here scratching my head more than having any clear answers on like what's right or wrong. And part of what I'm asking myself out of this period is, are there really like universal lessons to take out of it? Because I do think to an extent, you know, the fact that I pointed at the, the reason I pointed out the post World War II era is I feel like there are very few analogs for what we've gone through with COVID. Uh, not with COVID, the pandemic, but with COVID, the reaction to it, with the shutdowns of production, with the unique surges of demand in some areas and collapses in others, and then reopening. Like those are the kinds of things that maybe happen once or twice in a lifetime. Yeah, I, I'll say this. I think that's a great point. The the only thing that keeps blowing my mind is because I agree. Look, they did get dealt a bad hand in a certain sense, but they kind of treated the first part of it as like, oh, this is so great. We got 10 years of growth in one year. Our stock price quadrupled. Everybody's loving it, right? And then the other shoe drops and it's like, oh, wait, this really sucks. We got screwed. And I get it. Like, it was hard. You went from having to pay people double time to just get a shift done, right? Because the demand is off the charts and you didn't see it coming for perfectly good reason. I'm not saying anyone should have predicted the pandemic or been able to foresee this and had a perfect supply chain and business plan all drawn up for when COVID hit, but you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like I, I just find it so stunning that everybody kind of assumed, like I, I just read Trillion Dollar Triage, which is a great book. And it's amazing as to how bad it really was and how much worse it could have very easily been. And yet everybody just sort of assumes like, oh, well, of course we fixed it. And of course the stock market's going to go up 20% that year. And it's totally unfair that we're now having inflation on the back end. And it's like, no, like you don't get to have it both ways. And the same is true here. Like You don't get to say, okay, we pulled forward 10 years of demand and everything was awesome. And we missed out on $200 million of sales. So we can't do that again. And then complain too much when the bullwhip comes down the other side and you're having to now lay people off. Like on the one hand, I'm sympathetic that like, this sucks. And you've now found yourself in the latrine as, as Mr. Hedgedorn says, but like, you know, that's just kind of how it goes. Like this was a massive, horrible disruption. Forget about the human toll and all the people that were killed by the pandemic. This was not just like a, a normal course disruption to things. This was a really, really big problem. And it was going to always have negative ramifications. And for whatever reason, people just seem to forget that. And so to your second point, Elliot, that about like, 
what do I do and what do I take away from this? I, I guess, and, and just to be totally clear, I do not have an investment in Scotts. I've looked at the company. I, this is no form of recommendation, long or short. Any of the common day, any of the commentary I've given today, even more so than usual. This is this is nothing other than educational and edification purposes. Um, but I guess my lesson would have been, and had I looked at the company earlier this year before the meltdown really took hold, would have led me to pretty easily pass because you're always looking for the one thing that matters. And in this case, it would have been the inventory, right? And it's like, all right, yeah, look, this can be stored. It can be bled off for cash. It could even be financed if necessary. But what would lead me to believe that this inventory needs to be this high? And with a balance sheet that's already pretty levered, it just doesn't leave me the wiggle room. Again, another concept that seems to have been completely tossed in the garbage can the past few years is a margin of safety. Like, well, what if something bad does happen, right? And now something bad has happened and the stock price is at a level that's you know 50% lower than it was five years ago, right? I mean, this is not a good outcome for anybody. And so getting back to my old favorite dead horse that I love to beat is Peloton. And again, like, I was trying very hard all along the way to not be overly pessimistic and not sound like I'm short the stock because I never was. But it was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in my life. And and just to tie a bow on it, the stock is now at $9 a share. The all-time high uh, about five quarters ago was $171 per share. The IPO price, which was only in 2019, was $25 a share. I mean, this is a complete and total categorical disaster for anyone who's owned this equity through this boom, through this parabola. And look, the, the sales arc has been a parabola, but there are two problems I would have had here. One is that the company never made money. And to extrapolate it into something that has never before happened because you assume that current trends are not only going to persist, but accelerate because they would have definitely had to accelerate to justify anything doesn't leave any room to be wrong. There's absolutely no margin of safety in that. And then if you find one thing similar to the inventory issue, it's got some miracle growth. If you find one thing that just makes absolutely no sense, it's really hard to justify the rest of it. And in the case of Peloton, I've said over and over again, the assumption they were making internally with their lifetime customer value or their customer acquisition costs and all the other stuff they were touting was that they were going to have a 13-year customer relationship is just madness and total nonsense. And I said at the time, and I'll say it again, there was never a reason to suspect anything other than a huge glut in a in a roaring secondary market for Peloton bikes within a couple of years. And that's exactly what we have. I mean, there's plenty of articles you go look up right now, you go find them on Craigslist or eBay, right? I mean, everybody's dumping their Peloton bike right now. And it's because fitness has always been a short life cycle, fad, come and go kind of thing. And I can't tell you how many people just said I was too old or stupid or dumb to understand like this is different because of the community or the competitive nature of it or the flat screen on the bike itself or whatever it was. And it was just all nonsense. And saying 13 years is going to be the average life of your subscriber was total was completely and totally nuts. And so here we are. So when I find something like that that's just foundationally wrong, I just it's a quick and easy pass for me. Um, I want to push back slightly on Peloton because I think they have two separate businesses that you have to think about there. Um, and this notion that they're entirely a fad that benefited from the pandemic and it all fizzled out, um, I think is it, it, it's cloudier than meets the eye. They invested aggressively 
to meet a higher level of demand for new bikes than they'd otherwise have. But if you look immediately preceding the benefit, the the COVID wave, they had a little more than one and a half million customers and they were exercising like less than 12 times a month. And today they have 6 million subscription customers exercising almost 20 times a month. So people are using it more and they have way more customers and they're not going away, but they just aren't selling new bikes. And I think there's a big difference between, um, you know, saying it was a fad in a certain period of time versus saying it um, pulled forward a lot of their future TAM and won't necessarily have the same growth opportunity going forward as one would have hoped. Um, and it's one of the companies that I keep thinking about. You know, I pushed back on this probably wrongly, but with the same premise during 2020 with you, Phil. So, you know, uh, egg on my face for that, though, thankfully, I've not been involved in the stock. Um, but it's one of those areas where I think, um, you know, it, it's hard to parse certain nuances in a lot of these businesses. It's hard to like speak with total clarity about like which pieces are very tangible and real and which pieces aren't from the last few years. Um, and I think there's a lot of myopia about it. And, and you had referenced earlier, um, I think the big problem is over extrapolation in both directions. Like everything's great or everything's terrible. Um, but you also, much like with Scott's, there's a lot of fixed cost, and you can't get out of these bad mistakes made along the way very easily. Right. And and so I'd say you're you're 100% right. They overinvested and overextrapolated the trend and pumped way too much investment into inventory when they had the initial shortage, which led to the glut. But then they also did things like they were going to open that production facility in Ohio, which they've now completely done a 360 on in what, 18, 24 months or something, because that never made sense. They always lost money on the hardware. So they were going to double down on losing money on the hardware. Like that, that doesn't ever make sense. And as to your comment about the usage, look, I think we've already proven that those numbers are completely and totally bogus, right? There's, there are probably 5% of people that get on their Peloton 20 times a month. Like that just doesn't happen. And I think, wasn't it, wasn't it true that they, or someone found out that they were counting like cool down rides as like a separate ride if it exceeded five minutes or something. Like there, there's all sorts of nonsense and noise in there. And it just defies not only common sense, but empirical evidence that people are using their Pelotons less and dumping them on the secondary market. Yeah. I, uh, anecdotally, I mean, I just finished on mine before recording this, but I do think there are plenty of people who otherwise might not have had one that are using them a lot. But yeah, definitely some people bought them who will never need them. So it's it's like shades of both. But and again, like in this category, this is where like the concept of a base rate is enormous. There there has never been across a broad segment of the population of the country, right? Things like, you know, uh jazzercise and aerobics and water aerobics and taibo and you know, all this stuff, like it comes in orange theory, you know, not that long ago, right? It comes and it rides this, rides this massive wave for 12, 24, maybe 36 months. And people just don't, you know, the, the general population that wants this kind of thing, they just have never stuck with any one thing for that long, right? So it was just, you were defying all evidence that this was going to really persist. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I think that's one of the cases that they still have to fight um, and prove out whether it is uh, going to be the case with them or not. 
Yeah, because um, I mean, at the end of it, right, it is still just a stationary bicycle, right? And look, I love I I like exercise. I like this sort of thing. I have an elliptical at home that I've had for a long time, and it gets used occasionally, <laughs> like most people do. But the whole like that's what I mean. Like the assumptions of thirteen years and twenty times a month, like that's just not realistic, and it's never it's never going to work. And that's what led them, I think along with a handful of other factors to, to make this massive overinvestment. Right. And, and now we'll see, because it, it, unlike Scott's, their balance sheet is relatively okay for now, I guess. I mean, they have $2.3 billion of uh, debt, it looks like, but they have a decent amount of cash sitting there and, you know, they can ride this out for a while. And Barry's a smart CEO, CFO, and he'll, he'll do whatever he can to write the ship. But I, I just, it's, very difficult. And that's been one of my points of nuance with it, by the way. I think um, the bike itself is far more suited for the screen and class type engagement than is like a treadmill, where I know people who've bought the treadmill and they have to put this attachment on top to sit their iPad and watch Netflix when that's what you want to do on a treadmill. (laughs) So I think Mm -hmm. there's like some degree to which some products are great for it and some aren't. And it doesn't necessarily fit. And it is helpful that you have someone like Barry who's got a keen sense of how to operate these kinds of subscription businesses, manage these challenges. You know, a lot of people once thought Netflix was in the same spot. Um, Netflix had a moment in 2011 where their stock was down. I think it was close to 80% over the course of six months. And no one remembers that now. Maybe some people do. No, I think um, Reed's talked about that quite a lot, and I, you know, it, it's a good lesson. But I think there it was the two tier pricing, and you know, a it, it, you were still coming out of like the the DVD era almost at that point, right? So it was a, and it wasn't there was nothing like COVID happening in the background, right? So you're correct. Look, every great business, and and I mean great business, is going to have a fifty percent drawdown from time to time in the stock price, right? That that is table stakes for, for just life. A 70 or 80% drawdown is certainly possible, right? I mean, it happened to Amazon. It, it's happened to all sorts of great businesses. So that's neither here nor there. But like the difference is, is you know, the, the founder and CEO of Peloton is now not, not only now, no longer an executive, he's no longer a director because this was such a disaster. And whereas Netflix management pivoted and continued to execute. Right. I mean, that's what this and and the same, I think, will be true, by the way, of of Scott's Miracle Grow. Again, not a recommendation here, but I that is an enduring product. Right. I mean, the the levels we can debate about, but like people are going to continue to use that product. It does have some brand value. They have valuable relationships with the retail channel. And I think that company will figure it out. So uh, you just this is why I find Scott so fascinating. Right. Because these things tend to happen with the high flyers, with a company who's got really strong growth. And then they hit the growth wall and you don't know where like the the core level of demand is. Meanwhile, when it happens with a company like Scott's that's been around for, you know, as long as any of us have been around, um, it shows that there's something much deeper going on in the economy. I think it illustrates just how massive uh, that, that's why I'd compare it with the World War II uh, demobilization. Um, I think that's you know, one of those truly unique epics of time. And it was some of the like tech high flyers who kind of hit the skids first. Um, But, you know, there are other companies like Scott's, uh, some in the healthcare space, 
um, some in the uh, furniture space that have been around for a very long time that are experiencing these same kinds of uh, woes at this at this moment in time. Right. And, and to circle back, I mean, look, I think there's huge differences between what you would have had and experienced leading a subscription-oriented business that sells movies or music, TV shows like Spot, Spotify and Netflix, that, that type of business and and something like fitness, right? I mean, the whole point of this product and, and idea in fitness is that like the majority of people, certainly probably the vast majority of people are like, I don't want to exercise. I just want to have done the exercise. So there's like an element of needing to like force yourself into it. There's an element of discipline. Look, there are some fitness fanatics, some exercise enthusiasts that just love it and get up every morning and do it. And it's a part of their thing, right? But that's not a very big audience relative to the rest of the world. And so that's a huge difference. It's like people love to sit on the couch and watch Netflix and they love to listen to music. So that's a, a key differentiator here. And to, to your point, Elliot, so I think I just pulled it up. It looks like in 2011, Netflix hit $43, $44 a share and immediately fell off a cliff that fall and hit eight or nine dollars that fall troughed at like seven dollars the following year in 2012 but that's still and these are all split adjusted now but uh that's still like three or four x where it was just a few years prior uh coming out of the financial crisis right so again like it's painful and you'd never want to experience that i guess if you could choose your course in life but like it's nothing compared to being down three quarters from your IPO price three years prior and having a balance sheet issue and and that sort of thing and you know and, and Netflix by the way completely recovered Netflix that- did have a balance sheet issue by the way they repurchased shares near the high and had to issue shares near the low that actually put the bottom in interestingly enough okay well and they they recovered the the, the stock price anyway recovered its previous high within seven quarters or something, right? Eight quarters. It wasn't, wasn't, wasn't a super long, painful time. And if anyone would care to take the bet just for fun, again, this is not an investment recommendation. I highly, highly doubt the same will be true here in, in terms of Peloton. Agreed. Hard to fathom it. Yeah. Okay, terrific. Well, thanks guys for another great discussion and thank you all for listening. We'll catch up with you in two weeks. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.